It's good to be here and worship with all of you today. To kick things off, um, I always start with a question. So my question for you is, have you ever felt like the gospel isn't enough? I mean, we worship together every Sunday, and hopefully we spend time throughout our week alone with God. But when life uh, really kind of rushes in and circumstances become difficult, where do you turn? Is Jesus really enough? Is God's grace and presence in your life the rock on which you stand? In my own life, sometimes I think the answer to these questions is yes. But there are other times when I fall short, when I realize I've forgotten the power of the gospel and the presence of God in my life. Instead of turning to God in prayer, I take matters into my own hands. I try to rely on my own best efforts. And when I fail, when things go wrong, I wonder, where was God in all of this? The truth is that there are, there are times in life when we feel as if the gospel isn't enough, when the presence of our Heavenly Father doesn't measure up to what we feel that we need in the moment. Let me give you a classic example, and don't stop me if you've heard this story, because I think we've all heard this story, but I think it's a really great illustration of what Paul was teaching the Galatians who were being approached by these false teachers and told that faith in Jesus wasn't enough. And Jesus originally told this story um, in the form of a parable, uh, and it's been retold many times throughout the centuries. In fact, you may have even lived a version of this story from the perspective of one of the characters involved. The story goes like this. There once was a father who had two sons. The youngest son came to his dad one day with a shocking demand. He wanted his portion of the inheritance. Why was this shocking? Well, because inheritance was only given after the father passed away. All that he had would pass to his sons, um, and his eldest son would have a double uh, portion of the inheritance. And asking this, the younger son was essentially saying that his father wasn't enough. He was really just interested in his father's stuff. Surprisingly, the father met this demand not with anger or with refusal, but with acceptance, giving the son what he asked for. Well, the younger son leaves immediately and goes to a faraway country, wasting everything he was given. His birthright, gone, spent on fleeting pleasures in just an instant. Circumstances got so bad that he had to get a job, and this was the worst possible kind of job. He was hired to feed the pigs, but he didn't have food for himself. This was rock bottom for an Israelite because pigs are considered ritually unclean. And yet, these pigs in this story are of a higher status than the sun because at least they have food. It's a good illustration of what happens when we live as if the gospel isn't enough. We gradually lose everything that matters as we grasp for lesser things. When that happens, our eyes are often opened and we realize what's happened to us. And that's exactly what happens to the son. He realizes what's happened to him and he says, I'm going to go back home, but I can no longer be a son to my father. I'm going to instead return home as a servant. Well, the father sees him from a distance and is excited and runs to his son and gives him a greeting unlike anything the son could have anticipated. He tried to tell his father that he didn't deserve to be his son anymore and that instead he would be a servant in his father's household, but his father wouldn't have it. He took the rags off his son and dressed him in fine clothes. He put shoes on his feet. He ordered his servants to take the fattened calf, the best of the, vet, of the best, and prepare it for a party for the entire household. 
This is where the eldest son comes into the story. He's out in the field working and notices the commotion and asks one of the servants, what's going on here? And the servant says that your brother has returned and the party is for him. Well, his response, the response of the older son, is what I wanted to highlight for you as we kick things off. So it's in Luke chapter 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We know this as the prodigal son. The word prodigal doesn't mean lost, but it's often, it's often associated with the word lost in many of our Bibles and even substituted for the word lost. You know, as, I, as I've reflected on this story, I would argue that both brothers were lost. Why? Well, the eldest, eldest brother, as much as the younger brother, seemed to value his status in the family uh, and the things that came with it more than his relationship with his father or his brother. He relied on his own efforts and made his own way instead of leaning on his father's acceptance, grace, and love. His complaint was his father didn't even give him a skinny goat so that his friends and him could have a party. But his father says, all that I have and all that I am is always available to you at any time. You see, the older son had what really mattered, yet tried to earn it instead of receiving it as a gift. Another thing is the younger son left his father thinking he was a son, but he was really a servant at heart. I'm not saying, when I say this, I'm not saying anything bad about servanthood, but what I am saying is that he wasn't living into the fullness of his relationship with his father. He had taken on a lesser role in relation to the father. But when he was starving among the well-fed pigs, he realized he'd become less than a servant. So he figured that coming home would be a step up and appropriate atonement for his indiscretions. He was now more conscious of his true status, his heart's condition, but that's still not enough for the father. The father wanted not a servant, but a son. Both sons took their father for granted. I, I read a quote this week that I think really fit this story, and, and it goes like this. The person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much, and everything that God does for him is too little. Doesn't that just fit the attitude and mindset of these two sons perfectly? You know, it's this assumption, spoken or not, that the gospel isn't enough. Maybe the reason we think we're doing too much and God is doing too little is because we have the wrong perspective. See, the problem isn't that the gospel isn't enough. The problem is our perception and reception of the gospel. In other words, do we truly understand the gospel of grace? And have we really received it on God the Father's terms? This was the problem that the Galatian church faced as well. 
For the last four weeks, we've seen how Paul has argued that the Galatians are moving from the gospel of grace, of of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, to a false message. And that false message essentially is believe in Jesus and keep the law completely to be saved. This was not unique to Paul's time, but continued throughout the centuries in different forms, in one form or another. Uh, Even today, there are Christians who wouldn't argue theologically that we are saved by our own efforts, but live as if the gospel isn't enough. As Pastor Todd said several weeks ago, they nullify the grace of God. The story of the prodigal sons is a concrete example of this sense that the gospel is not enough. But the problem isn't the gospel, it's our perception and reception of the gospel. And this leads us to two mindsets. The first I'm I'm calling the servant mindset, uh, the servant mentality. You'll recognize it as the mindset of both the sons in our story. It goes something like this. I must earn and maintain my place. It's fear-based because we're always worried that we'll lose our status in relationship to God. And it's it's performance-based because we're always working hard to earn God's favor and gifts. The second mindset is the son mentality. It goes something like this. My place is secure in my father's house, and I can simply be who God calls me to be. This mentality is based on faith and the promises of God. Whereas the servant mentality is inwardly obsessed, the son mentality is free from this obsession to focus outwardly on others, on our relationships with God and with other people. The father in our story had two sons, but both had the servant mentality. And so it is with many people of faith today. When we feel like the gospel isn't enough, when God's grace and presence is less important to us than God's stuff, we've taken on the servant mentality. We do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Our immaturity is hidden behind a thin veneer of godliness, but we have miles to go. In order to become mature, We need to adopt the son mentality. Now, just a quick note. I I debated on whether to change the word son to child um, uh, just to modernize the language a little bit. But one of the things I realized is, well, A, most of the texts that I read use this word specifically. And then B, we just read the prodigal son story. Now, just know that when I say son in in the context of the sermon, I'm referring to both men and women of faith who we would ordinarily call the children of God. You know, actually, one of the cool things I learned when I was uh, preparing this message this week was how radical the use of the word son is in the book of Galatians. You see, women had no property rights and very little social status in Paul's day. They wouldn't ordinarily receive any inheritance when their father passed away. But Paul essentially says that women are counted as sons in God's inheritance, having every right, the same amount of rights as a male in God's eyes, to God's promises. We lose a sense of just how radical this was in Paul's day when we modernize the language. Plus, and maybe this is the main reason, plus, son mentality sounds way better than child mentality, if you know what I mean. See, the Galatians who had put their faith in Jesus should have had the son mentality, but because of the false teachers in their midst, they had taken on the servant mentality. Their experience of God in relationship with the Father was less than it could have been. In fact, God could do less in their lives and in their community because they had put on this servant mentality. 
They needed a change in perspective to understand that the gospel is, in fact, enough. For those of us who struggle with this today, I think the main question we can ask Paul in this text is, how can you, how can we resist the servant mentality? Today we learn five ways to do this. The first way to resist the servant mentality is to live by faith and not by fear. Continuing in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes this, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You know, Paul is a master of pointing out examples in ordinary life that illustrate a biblical truth. Jesus did this very well with his parables, um, in particular the parable of the prodigal son, which we just talked about. Here Paul's talking about how the law was our guardian until Christ came. In Paul's time, there was a Greek household servant called a pedagogus. I know that sounds made up, but that's, that's the name. A pedagogus, there we go. Uh, the pedagogus would uh, be put in charge of the moral and, uh, and physical welfare of a child 6 to 16 years of age. And what he would do is he would lead the child from his home to the school and deliver him to his teacher. He would also ensure that the child didn't get, up, uh, get into any mischief when he was out. So he took on a bit of a disciplinary role as well. What Paul's saying here is that the law functions the same as the pedagogus. It's meant to guide us through life and to help us avoid those sins that can have grave consequences in our lives. It leads a person to Christ, just like the servant leads his charge to his teacher. It can't lead us into the presence of Christ, but it can lead us right up to Christ so that we can make the choice to enter that presence ourselves. And this happens when we realize our efforts simply aren't enough. Last week, we talked about how the Galatians and some of the Jewish believers had misunderstood the meaning of the law. God knew we couldn't keep all of those laws, not in our sinful state, not in our brokenness. But the law, the purpose of it is to reveal our sin, our need for new life, and the power of God's grace. David Prince tells the story of a family who adopted a little girl from an abusive orphanage in a a different country. When they had brought her home, uh, they explained the the ground rules of the, the house, and they said that one of the things we expect of you is that you clean your room every day. Well, the girl fixated on this and saw it as a way to earn her parents' love. You see, she had taken this new chore and applied it to her already existing mindset, her already existing framework, which was shaped by the orphanage. Again, we can call this the servant mentality. Every day her parents would come in and find the room immaculate. And one day she said to them, my room is clean. Do you still love me? Can I stay? And this broke her parents' hearts. Eventually, the girl learned that she was a beloved child who would never be forsaken by her parents. She came to understand that correction and discipline is part of what it means to be in the family, that she would have a place that was never going to be taken from her. She learned how to live by faith and not by fear. 
She had put on the son mentality. You see, when we're new to the faith, many of us only resolve to be very good or very religious, trying to obtain God's favor by our works. This leads to emotional ups and downs, feeling good about our spiritual commitments when we keep them and terrible when we break them. There's so much anxiety because we obey God out of fear of rejection and a sense that salvation comes only through our religious performance. When we reject the servant mentality and adopt the son mentality, we come to truly honor the law because all we want to do is please our Father in heaven in whose house we're secure. It ceases to be the means of our salvation and simply becomes the means of our growth in God's house. We no longer work for salvation because we've received God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The second way you can resist the servant mentality is to clothe yourself with Christ. Paul tells us that our faith in Jesus changes nothing outwardly, but changes everything inwardly. And this inward change leads to a different way of living in the world. Listen to this in um, Galatians 3.26, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, this right here is one of the most remarkable truths in Scripture. We don't just live with Jesus in God's house. Jesus lives in us and makes us, the church, into God's house. When we clothe ourselves with Christ, we stand out from the crowd altogether different. We may still be black or white, male or female, rich or poor, but that doesn't define who we are. Those aren't our primary defining qualities anymore. You know, our culture is often obsessed with labels and labeling people. Um, we do it all the time, even when we don't realize it. I remember going through my 20s, inventing and reinventing myself, trying to, trying to figure out who I am, and, uh, and feeling like I just didn't fit. Well, when I came to know Jesus, when I clothed myself in Christ, I finally understood who I really was. I may be a middle-class white male, but that doesn't define me. What does define me? is my primary identity as a child of God, as a son of the Father. And I learned I no longer needed to find or invent an identity for myself. I could just simply be in Christ's presence. The amazing thing that is that in Christ, all social stations, cultural labels, races, and nationalities stay in place. We don't lose our distinctiveness in Christ, but we no longer base our self-worth on these outward things. Instead, our self-worth is based on our status as sons and daughters of Almighty God. But that's not all. The ironic thing about faith is that we come to maturity when we realize that we can't stand on our own. It's our failure in standing on our own is when we come to maturity. And Ian Corbin from Harvard Medical once interviewed numerous stroke patients in a study. Uh, many consign themselves to a private, solitary life after their stroke, not out of inability, but out of shame. And this only tended to compound their health issues, being isolated. He noted that in America, we're ashamed of being weak, vulnerable, and dependent, preferring instead to hide. He concluded that we need to teach ourselves that interdependence is nothing to be ashamed of. It's our birth birthright, the source 
of our greatest strength. The servant mentality you see can never bring you to maturity because it's solely focused on what you can do. The son mentality instead is focused on what Christ can do in us. As we clothe ourselves with Christ in the community of faith, our primary identity and loyalty is to Jesus. We begin to take up our cross and follow him. It means we have the heart of a son but live as a servant. And that's what God wants of us. Not to serve out of fear or hope for a reward or to avoid some kind of punishment, but to serve because we've invited Jesus into our hearts to enact the gospel of grace through our lives. The third way you can resist the servant mentality is to test the promises of God. It's when we focus on what God has done, what he has promised, rather than on our own merit, our lack thereof, that we can put off the servant mentality and put on the son mentality. Listen to what Paul says next in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Here, Paul reiterates what he was saying about the guardian or the pedagogus, but he reframes his argument around the promises of God. Specifically, he mentions God's promise to Abraham. Uh, You may have recalled uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor HK talked about uh, God's promise to Abraham, how God was going to make Abraham into a great nation, that his descendants would become a mighty people, and that all peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And this is God's promise that we would be blessed through him. And we know this promise was fulfilled in Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham. Jesus, who saves all who put their faith in him, saves us from our sins, saves us from death, and from separation from God. Did you know that depending on who you ask, there's somewhere between 3,500 to about 8,000 promises in Scripture? Do you know God's promises? Can you name one of God's promises right now? It's hard to have confidence in what we don't know. Many discount God because they they feel that if, if God's real, they won't have any problems in life. But show me the scripture that promises, in this life you will have no trouble. Actually, Jesus says the opposite, that in this life we will have trouble. But even so, even with troubles, here's what Jesus promises for us. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. He promises to fill us with the abundance of his life and grace. God even invites us to test him in one instance as it relates to our tithe and to our material gifts. Do God's promises seem too good to be true? Maybe, sometimes. This week I read the story of a man named Vic Pence, Um, who uh, told a story about a time he went to Nordstrom, of all places. I I didn't think I'd ever preach with Nordstrom being an illustration, but here we are. Um, 
One day he bought a blazer from Nordstrom, and uh, over time he realized, I really don't like this blazer. Like, it's, it's just not a very good color, the material's a little uncomfortable, and it collects lint like nobody's business. Well, after six months, he stopped wearing it, and he kind of stuck it in his closet and forgot about it. But also at the back of his mind was Nordstrom's unconditional return policy. So after a year and a half, he opens his closet, he discovers this blazer in there, and he says, I'm going to go put that policy to the test. So he goes to Nordstrom, and he talks to the clerk, and he says, look, I've had this blazer for over a year. I've worn it a lot, but it's not the right color. It's a little scratchy, and it just collects a lot of lint. And the clerk says, for heaven's sake, what took you so long? Let's go find you a blazer. So they go find a blazer, and 10 minutes later, Vic walks out with a blazer marked $75 over the price of his original blazer, and he didn't pay a penny more. Nordstrom made an almost outlandish promise, a promise that seemed too good to be true, but it was true. God is the same way, but far better. Sometimes God's promises seem too good to be true, and we can't quite bring ourselves to believe. But have you tested God's promises? I challenge you to look up a few this week. Remember how many there are? Somewhere between 3,500 and 8,000? You should be able to find one or two of God's promises. And then put them to the test. I can guarantee that like the clerk in Nordstrom, God will tell you, for heaven's sake, what took you so long? Because God's promises are true, and when we test them, we find that they're effective in moving us from the servant mentality to the son mentality. The fourth way that you can resist the servant mentality is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Our change in status as children of God gives us the greatest gift that there is, God's presence. And when we invite God into our hearts, God changes our hearts. Here's what Paul says next in verse 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his sons, of his son, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is, is hard to translate, but it essentially is equivalent to something like Daddy or Papa. This cry Paul talks about is proof that we're sons and daughters of God. God isn't just some distant figure that we must serve in order to get some kind of reward or avoid some kind of punishment. He isn't just some impersonal force that is standing aloof from our lives. God is our loving Father, our Papa in heaven, who has the very best at heart for us. One commentary put it this way, through Christ we have the legal status of sonship, but it's through the Spirit that we have the actual experience of sonship. This, to receive the Spirit, all you need to do is ask. That's all you need to do. Paul uses the language of call out. Call out essentially means prayer. And prayer is the key to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Prayer is key to staying in tune with God's Spirit. And prayer is key to nurturing the mentality of a son. As a good pastor mentor of mine used to say, we all need time to climb up into the lap of Papa God. The Holy Spirit makes us possible to delight in our Heavenly Father. Life is different when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I was reading um, about a pastor named David Hansen 
who uh, lives by a river and does a lot of bird watching. So uh, near his home, he often sees bald eagles, ospreys, uh, golden eagles, um, hawks, and geese. He notices that the geese have to work really hard to fly. They have to flap constantly uh, to get airborne and to maintain their, uh, their, their altitude. Whereas the birds of prey soar on the thermals. You see, living with the servant mentality in the father's house is a lot like being a goose. We're, we can fly, but it takes a lot of effort and we become exhausted pretty quickly. But having the sun mentality is like being one of those birds of prey soaring on the thermals because we have this amazing spiritual updraft from God. Maybe the reason you sometimes feel like the gospel isn't enough is because you're flying by your own power. Ask the Lord for his presence, and I believe that he'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. The final way to resist the servant mentality is to rejoice that you are a child of God. Think about the best news you've ever received and multiply that by a million. We don't realize it, and I think we often take it for granted, but that's exactly what the gospel is. Gospel literally means good news, and it's the very best news ever. We have a Father in heaven who loves us so much that he came, he sent his Son so that we could know him, that we could be saved through him, and that we could be adopted in God's forever family. If that's not a cause for rejoicing, I don't know what is. But we often forget to rejoice as we focus on the problems that we have in life. Listen to the good news that Paul shares with the Galatians as we wrap up. Verse 7, Paul writes, Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Paul said earlier that those who put their faith in Jesus are heirs to the promise that God made to Abraham. They're also heirs to all of God's other promises as well. Remember how many promises there are? Somewhere between 3,500 and 8,000. We're heirs. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're heirs to all of those promises. There's far more reason for us to rejoice than for us to give in to the, the narrative of this world that things are hopeless, this cynical outlook. But gratitude can be hard for us. It's a spiritual practice, just as much as reading prayer, uh, or yeah, no, reading scripture or praying can be uh, a spiritual practice. Fortunately, there are some ways for us to, to maintain and to build this practice of gratitude. One way is by journaling or reflecting in a group on God's movement in our lives. Another way is by making a gratitude list. Uh, author and blogger Chris Winfield once was stuck in a mindset of why me whenever something bad happens in his life, which from his perspective was pretty much constant. But he began to write a gratitude list every day for over 34 months, and it changed his life. He learned four lessons from doing this. The first is that it's hard at first. When our mindsets are, are geared so much towards negativity, it's hard for us to change that. The second is that there's always something to be grateful for. The third is that gratitude grows over time as we use it. And the fourth, and this is the most important, I think, is that it can help you stop negative thought patterns. The average person has 70,000 thoughts a day. And Chris uh, was reflecting on his earlier time and saying that most of his 70,000 thoughts were negative. 
But to get rid of negative thoughts, we need to replace them with thoughts that are positive. It's a change in mentality. So if you want to resist the servant mentality, you need to put on the son mentality. Have you rejoiced that you're a child of God? Have you counted your blessings? Are you filling your heart with things that are good and uplifting instead of focusing on the things you don't have that this world says that you need? Do you serve God out of obligation or do you serve God out of gratitude? When I talk about the servant mentality, I'm not saying that we shouldn't serve God or people around the world. Please understand that. What I'm saying is that not every servant is a son of God, but every son of God is a servant. It's the children of God who define what serving actually is about. Not to gain something, not to earn their own way, but as gratitude for all that God has done. Stay grateful, church family. Stay grateful. Because when we aren't rejoicing over what we've been given freely, we're grasping for lesser things. We demand what we think we're owed, and we go to the faraway country and lose what really matters. Here's what it all comes down to. As it concerns how we relate to God, you are called out of servant, uh, servanthood into sonship. And that leads us right back to the beginning. The prodigal son left with a servant mentality, came back seeking to be a servant, but became a son through the father's love and mercy. His brother, meanwhile, is still stuck in the servant mentality. This is a wonderful parable because it puts us in the shoes of the characters involved, especially in the shoes of the older brother who's being called out of servanthood into sonship. Have you noticed that the story ends without resolution? We don't know if the brother will go into the party or if he'll stay outside the warmth of his father's presence. We don't know if the younger brother will come out of the party and, 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 and witness to his older brother and say, that the Father's love and mercy is, in fact, enough. What we do know is that the Father waits patiently for the older son to choose. The parable confronts each of us with a choice. For those times when we feel the gospel isn't enough, do we choose to believe that the gospel is the problem? Or do we choose to believe instead it's our perception and reception of the gospel? Do we choose to live by faith and not by fear? Do we choose to be clothed with Christ? Do we choose to test the promises of God or to be filled with the Holy Spirit or rejoice that we're God's children? It all comes down to a choice. As the oldest son stands outside of the party, his decision awaits our answer. So church family, do we choose to be received by the Father on his terms, accepting adoption into his family, or do we insist on making our own way? Which will it be, servant or son? That's the decision before each of us. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for coming for us, for rescuing us from sin and from death. Lord, there are times in our lives where we live as if we're afraid, Lord, that you're going to snatch away that gift from us. We live as if we need to earn your love. But Lord, you loved us already. It's why you sent Jesus for us. 
So, Lord, let us cling to that. Let us believe that. And may we start from the place of sonship rather than servanthood, that we may, when we do serve in the world, that we may do it for the right reasons, not to earn your favor, not to earn your grace, but because we're grateful for all that you've done for us, because we know that you have separated our sins as far as the east is from the west, because we know, Lord, that you love us and that we have a place in your house, and that place will never be taken away from us. We don't need to ask if you still love us, if we can stay. We're part of your family. And so, God, give us that confidence, the confidence of children of God, that we may live our lives accordingly. Lord God, help us to resist that servant mentality that we may not be stuck outside of the party you've invited us into. Lord, help us to resist the servant mentality through living by faith and not by fear, by clothing ourselves with Christ, by testing your promises, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, and Lord, by rejoicing that each and every one of us are your children. We give you thanks, God, and we pray, Lord, that as we leave this place in just a little bit, we may go filled with your Holy Spirit, filled with gratitude to serve for the right reasons, that we may be your sons, your daughters, serving this world that needs desperately to know that you love and that you rescue them and that we are called to reach out and to bring them into your presence, to invite them to the party. So God, we pray all of this and more with gratitude and great expectation in the mighty and awesome and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people say, amen, amen.